You're listening to the Crosscheck NHL Show, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Here are your hosts, Andrew Berkshire and Mary Clark. Hello and welcome to the Crosscheck NHL Show. Today's episode is brought to you by Rock Auto. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. Visit rockauto.com and tell them Locked On sent you. My name is Mary Clark, staff writer for The Win, and you can follow me on Twitter at Mary C. Clark. I'm here with Andrew Berkshire, NHL analyst for the Montreal Gazette. You can follow on Twitter at Andrew Berkshire. On this Thursday edition of the Crosscheck, the Stanley Cup Final is in full swing. The Lightning have taken a two-game lead over the Canadians, but did Montreal blow a golden opportunity to tie up the series in Game 2? Plus, we'll chat with Justin Bourne of Sportsnet to discuss the Stanley Cup Final at large and what has gone wrong with the Canadians so far. So, Andrew, before we start off today's show... How you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm uh, sitting in the basement with the fan on, trying to beat the heat a little bit. Uh, it's not as hot today as it's been. We had like a couple days in the like low 40s, high 30s here, which is over 100 for American listeners. <laughs> uh, so enjoying uh, that it's cooled down a little bit. It's a holiday here, so the kids are out at the park. I can't wait to uh, finish up with the podcast so I can join them. Oh, nice. It is. We have um, our holiday, 4th of July, uh, coming up this weekend, but I will be working. Well, I'll be playing D&D with my friends and then I'll be working. So I get a little bit of both, but not much happening for me, really. I am uh, uh, kind of tapped out on my family. We did a lot since, you know, I went on vacation with a bunch of them. Uh, we're kind of, you know, a lot of us are working, so I don't really get to, you know, have like a full holiday weekend, but that's all right. It's... I'm more okay with a subdued holiday, if I'm being honest, but I am glad that you are going to go out with your family today. Is it, like, any cooler there today at all? Yeah, it's a little bit cooler. Uh, it's going to warm up a bit, but uh, it's not, like, cold or anything. Uh, I'm I'm kind of used to working Canada Day, to be honest, working in hockey, right? Because mm-hmm. July 1st oh, yeah. is always free agency day. So it's very mm-hmm. rare that I actually get to in- enjoy a day off on this day. Yeah, yeah. I'm used to working holidays, too. Um especially like around this time of year because of the, um, you know, free agency and all that. Uh, what is nice, though, is I do like how the NHL does have, you know, Christmas, like the Christmas break. Uh, so I've always enjoyed that about the NHL is that, um, you know, they don't play games on Christmas, so I can enjoy that holiday because I think that's the holiday that matters the most to me personally, just, you know, within my family and stuff like that. But it's good to, you know, spend time with the fam, um, just, you know, stay cool because it is it is still hot. It is still hot here. I mean, it's only 80 some degrees here, which it doesn't feel like a major difference uh, to me, but I'm just staying inside, keeping cool. I think that's the best we honestly can do at this point. Yeah, it's, it's the way to go. It's that or uh, head to the water park or go swimming probably do one of those mm-hmm. things later this afternoon unless it rains but uh yeah it, it's been it's fun i mean we've got uh, family coming across the country here uh shortly we're gonna go camping next week so you're gonna be doing the podcast without me similar to yeah. uh, when you went <laughs> on vacation so it's gonna be a bit of a shake-up uh i'm hoping that the stanley cup final is wrapped up before we, I have to go on vacation because it's kind of awkward to to leave when it can oh, yeah. be awarded. That's I was looking at that too, and but considering the way games one and two have gone, um, I think we might not have to worry about that. <laughs> uh, sorry, sorry to any uh, Canadians fans listening to this podcast right now, um, but that's like the big topic we've got for today. Outside of our interview, um, we are two games into the Stanley Cup final, Andrew. Yes, and. Um, we'll at least start with game one because our episode came out on Tuesday after game one, but we decided to preview it instead of try and get game one in there. So we had more content to talk about, uh, today with you guys. So Tampa Bay took game one, rolling it back by a score of five to one in that game. Um, in the first two periods, they had the edge in five on five possession, but then the Canadians looked dominant in the third, but then, you know, the lightning lit it up on the score sheet and just took it to them. Um, they were really just too much for Montreal to handle in that first game and held Montreal to just 19 shots. Um, so it, it looked a little bit different in game two, but in game one, at least, um, the lightning definitely seemed to have a chokehold on. Yeah. Montreal. I think the Canadians were surprised by the speed that Tampa Bay was able to execute with. Uh, I think that you look at how Vegas plays and they have some speed to their game, but their decision-making is a little bit slower, a little bit more to the perimeter, whereas especially on the power play, Tampa Bay Lightning, like the way that they pass the puck is like, I'm going to shoot it to you. It's your job to handle it. And I I love that idea. That's what the thing that I love most, I think, about watching the Lightning is it's just 
they put the onus on the pass receiver to corral, right? And yeah. they're, they're going to fire that puck as fast as possible to get through uh, sticks and lanes and create opportunities. Decision-making is fast. It's handle the puck, immediately pass the puck again, get pe- people running around. And I think that when you look at the Canadians' top four defense and what they've been able to accomplish this postseason uh, outside of Jeff Petrie, all those guys, if you can get them moving around a little bit, they get in trouble. And I think yeah. that's what's kind of been the key to this to the Lightning offense so far in this one is that their puck movement is so quick that the Canadians haven't been able to catch up to it. And I, I think it was less that in game two, but in game one, the Canadians' defense was particularly behind the play. Uh, in game two, they did adjust and they took away a bit of the Lightning speed, but the mistakes were still there and... You know, as, as much as I think the focus has been on goaltending, I think the Lightning have gotten some pretty lucky breaks here in in the first couple of games. Uh, not to say that they don't deserve it because they have been the better team. And the Canadians have been getting lucky breaks to get to this point. Every team that wins at this point in the playoffs gets lucky breaks. But the lucky breaks that the Canadians have been getting, the Lightning have been getting against them. Uh, like you look mm-hmm. at uh, the goal that Ben Sherratt whacked a puck out of the air and it just went straight to a stick and yeah. behind Carey Price. Uh, two of the goals in game two, uh, Ben Sherratt whiffing on a puck, kind of a lazy play at the blue line at the end of a period, ends up in the back of the net, which was a phenomenal goal by Blake Coleman, mm-hmm. like just incredible. And almost a picture-perfect uh, recreation from what he did against Boston last year. He did almost yeah. the exact same thing, which is crazy. But uh, <laughs> there's mental mistakes and there's a bit of luck. I think... There's a temptation to look at the way this series has gone so far and say it's going to be over really quickly. But if the Canadians can maintain what they did in game two and cut out the mental mistakes, I think they can steal a couple games here. Mm, interesting. I did. I could see you put that as a rebuttal to my transition into this uh, into this segment, Andrew, but that is okay. I will let that slide. Uh, so, but the Lightning really are living up to their name. They're fast, make incredibly quick plays. It, it's very disorienting if you're like the opposing team. Uh, they really put you on the back foot all the time. Yeah. And also in game one, we talked about it in our preview, but uh, the Canadians' penalty kill streak was broken at 32 consecutive kills when Steven Stamkos scored... I believe in the third period and broke that streak. It was kind of like, I think the game was basically put away by that point from what I remember. Yes. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, uh, it just a little note, but that was a very impressive streak going back to the Toronto series. Um, I'd figured that that was going to be broken against Tampa Bay because they're just so good on the power play. And we've mentioned it in our preview that, um, the special teams is going to be big. Um, but, like you said, the defensive mistakes and, you know, I guess game luck, as you would call it, and stuff like that, have, I guess, been the biggest story, especially in game two. But in game one, I wanted to highlight that that penalty streak, uh, penalty kill streak is over because that was a very impressive thing the Canadians did. Um, it is just the Tampa Bay Lightning power play is just too powerful and too good. Like, you're, you're get, they're getting at least one every game, it feels like. Yeah, it does feel like that. And they, they weren't able to get one in game two, which I think the Canadians' penalty kill really did adjust very, very well. And the focus for their penalty killing is rightfully on preventing from the, light, the Lightning from getting set up at all. And they're very, very aggressive to keep the puck from, or to keep the Lightning from getting their, their power play set up pitch perfect. Because once it is, once everyone is in position, they can't get the puck back. Like it's just, it looks like Harlem Globetrotters stuff. Like it, it, it's, they're so good. It's like the, the yeah. combination of threats is just unbelievable. Braden Point, one of the best net front guys in the league, or like middle slot guys in the league. Kucherov and Stamkos with the one timers, and then you've got Hedman up top. And in game one, Alex Killorn in front of the net. Game two, I actually forget who they had on that top line, but it almost doesn't matter. You know, yeah. like. Not to say that Alex Killorn isn't great, he is, but like the puck movement that they're able to accomplish with that five man unit is unbelievable and everybody is a threat. I think that's the biggest thing, right? Like yeah. every single player on that top power play can pass and they can shoot. And it's just you can't really focus anyone out like they could against the Maple Leafs with Austin Matthews. They could take a shot away and kind of let Marner make his own mistakes. Uh, against the Jets, it was, you know, take away uh, Blake Wheeler's passing 
Uh, Mark Shifley wasn't there, so that's a little bit easier. Uh, cover Kyle Connor's shooting against the, the Vegas Golden Knights. Well, they're just going to play it to the defense, so let them do whatever they want. It's just going to be a Petrangelo or Shea Theodore one-timer from the, from the point, which Price gobbled up pretty easily. It's a different situation with Tampa Bay, and I'm not sure outside of preventing them from getting set up at all within a very aggressive, uh, I guess, a, a big, a wide box, like an aggressive box, uh, mm-hmm. to, to keep pucks bouncing or like sw- whacked them out of the zone. Other than that, once they're set up, I don't think there is an effective strategy for for stopping <laughs> them. You know, like it's just hope and pray and try to get in passing lanes. But uh, yeah, I mean, you're already down a player on the, at least a player on a power play yeah. or on a penalty kill. Uh, what, like, what can you do? They just have so much talent on that, on those units that it is, it is nearly impossible to get away unscathed. Mm-hmm. Um, but shifting towards game two, because that was the game that we just saw on Wednesday night. Um, Tampa Bay won game two by a score of 3-1. I think Montreal deserved much better in this game than they got. Uh, they were the better team the majority of the time. I don't have the numbers to back that up, but I'm pretty sure that they would say that they were the better team for basically like 55 minutes uh, minus, you know, those like couple terrible mistakes. But those are the mistakes that sunk them in this game. Um, we talked about, um, you know, the turnovers at the end of the second period that led to Blake Coleman's incredible a buzzer beater and was for me the turning point of that game. Oh, hundred percent. Um, because because I mean I think there's yeah. two turning points. Not to cut you off, Mary. Sorry. I think that's okay. The, no, the no. Blake Coleman goal was obvious, like an obvious turning point. But I think the biggest turning point in that game actually was when the Canadians got that four on three power play and did nothing. Like not no, just yeah. did nothing in terms of accomplishment. They did nothing at all. They passed the puck yeah. around the perimeter. They had two guys at the point and two guys in the corners for some reason. They didn't mm-hmm. push at all until the top line got off and uh, Jesperi Kotkaniemi tried to take it all by himself through the middle. But, uh, I, I mean, from a player, like, deployment issue, from the attitude of what they were trying to do, I don't understand. I understand that you don't practice four on three. It's just not something that uh, comes up a lot. But you got to put your offensive players out there and putting 2D out there was yeah. just stupid to me. And not having <laughs> Caulfield, like if you're going to put yeah. any two forwards out there, if you're going to put 2D, it has to be Suzuki and Caulfield. Oh, All due respect sure. to Toffoli, but it has to be yeah. Suzuki and Caulfield. Yeah. So that was a big turning point too, as you said. Um, but, you know, Tampa Bay took the lead and then Montreal punched back at them, um, which I wasn't surprised to see. They were like really starting to control the game at that point. Um, and it really started to feel when that happened that like this could be tan- this could be you know Montreal's game. This could be you know that the- this is what the chance that they're you know if they're going to take a chance, it's going to be now. This is going to be the chance to tie up the series. But that buzzer beater really really kicked them in. And then of course uh, you have that final goal uh, with the weird weird turnover from Joel Edmondson. Like what what were you doing back there, buddy? He turns that puck over and then it's. 3-1 and the game has been put to bed i mean it, it stuff like that just takes the wind out of you completely like it's just a mental mistake and i montreal by like the metrics deserved better here but those mistakes cost them and i can't help but think that they just blew a golden opportunity to send this series back to montreal uh, tied 1-1 but now they're you know basically facing down the barrel of a gun and it is uh 2-0 against them um, and they have a lot of work to do, uh, in my opinion. I mean, they did make, um, like, they were the better team in game two, but they're now down two games. It is, it, it's only like a bit of a consolation prize that they played well. If they can continue to play well, then sure, but just those mistakes, that that's gonna, for me, if that's, if they, if they lose this, uh, cup final, that game two is the game I'm going to come back to here for sure. Oh, absolutely. And I think that, you know, I'm of two minds in terms of how well they played. I think that you have to give them credit for the adjustments, but mm-hmm. I, I look at Tampa Bay's defense in that game, uh, not their defense men, but the defense that they played as a unit, and I thought that they were incredible. I looked at most of the Canadians' chances, and almost all of them were either forced wide or forced to the backhand, and, you know, Vasilevsky <clears throat> made a lot of saves in that game. I don't think many of them were very good or not, like, not very challenging for him, and part of that is because yeah. he is so good. But he was always square to the shooter. They didn't make him chase the puck. I, I, I need to see more from the Canadians if they're going to find a way back into this series because 
it's one thing to dominate the flow of play and it, and it's good to do that, but you have to get a little bit more creative offensively. And that's like, I have a column coming out for the Gazette today that uh, the Canadians need to bring in Thomas Tatar. And I know that he hasn't played for over a month, but he's a guy who brings offense. And as much as what they've been doing has worked up until this point, they haven't faced a team like Tampa Bay that brings the offense uh, to this degree and also plays well defensively. So like they need to counter that, and be able to produce more offense. And with two goals in two games, what you're doing isn't working. Yeah. You have to find a way mm-hmm. through. And even if Tatar himself can't produce, he's a threat that the Tampa Bay Lightning have to look at, right? So it yeah. could open up more space for other players. And that Deneau-Gallagher line has worked exceptionally well as a pure shutdown line in these playoffs. They've shut down the opposing top players. But at a certain point, when the Tampa Bay Lightning are scoring their goals from like Blake Coleman, Yanni Gord, Andre Palat, your depth has to score as well. And if the fourth line can't do it with uh, Perry and Stahl and Armia and uh, Nick Suzuki, I think his line has been uh, really rebounded great in, in game two, but they're going to have to keep on doing that. I think you need more offense from that Deno Gallagher line and Tatar brings that. Uh, that line has been incredible over the past three years. So as much as Tatar hasn't been a great playoff player in his career, He's got to be hungry. Mm-hmm. This is the Stanley Cup final. He's been held yeah. out for a month. Like, if anybody wants to get in there, it's got to be Thomas Tatar. Yeah, and you ha- at this point, you have to change it up. The Canadians outshot the Lightning 43 to 23. And you're doing all you can. It, like, I mean, like you said, there weren't a lot of high danger chances, but they were at least putting the puck somewhere close to the net and getting shots. But at this point, you have to change it up. You have to get like somebody like Tatar back into the mix and at least make... And make it a bit more threatening for the lightning and cause them to react and have to make adjustments and stuff. Um, but I guess to end this uh, segment before we head on to our interview, uh, do you think that they have a chance? I mean, we're by the time we, when this episode goes out, we will have game three on Friday. And I don't know when we're going to record, but then game four is Monday. Do you think by the next time we talk to each other, Andrew, that this series will be over? We'll be tied. We'll have Montreal won a game. What do you think? I think when we next talk, it's going to be 3-1 Tampa Bay. I think the Canadians are going to take one. I think the Canadians do have a chance here. Uh, I don't think Tampa Bay is unbeatable. We saw the Islanders took them to seven. You know, like This team does have exploitable parts to it. It's just that are the Canadians willing to change things up enough to get it done here? I don't know. And... Carey Price is going to have to be better. I don't think he's been bad in the first two games. In fact, I think he's been their best player, despite the fact that his save percentage is in the toilet. I think <laughs> that uh, the Lightning have just gotten golden opportunity after golden opportunity. He's given them the big saves at like crucial times that you would you normally expect to inspire a team, but they haven't been able to muster anything the other way around. I think the Canadians are going to have to force the Lightning into more mistakes. They just haven't been able to do that so far. Uh, I, I think there's a chance that they can win. But it's a very, very low chance. Yeah, I think we're looking at a gentleman's sweep here. And I mean, I know I predicted uh, Tampa in six, but the way things have been going, I'm, I think that you're on the right track. Montreal will win one, but I think we're going to go back to Tampa Bay uh, with the 3-1 series lead of the Lightning, possibly able to close it out early next week. But we'll continue our talk of, you know, the Stanley Cup final and, you know, what's gone wrong with Montreal when we bring on Justin Bourne uh, of Sportsnet, you know former player which we kind of get into at the beginning of the beginning of the interview but uh we'll be right back with that interview right after this bet online is the fastest and easiest way to get all your sports action baseball season is in full swing and you can track all the action at bet online get all the latest news odds and info for all your sporting needs including mlb nba nhl and our ufc mma action before the next pitch head over to bet online on your laptop or mobile device and check out all the great sporting news sign up bonuses and contest information don't sit on the sidelines anymore, as this is your chance to get into the game as teams prep for the runs to the playoffs. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. Promo code locked on. Welcome back to the Crosscheck NHL show. We're here with a special guest today from Sportsnet, former NHL player, former video coach of the Toronto Marlies, Justin Bourne. How are you doing, Justin? 
I'm doing well. I'm doing well. By the way, I'm, I should probably stop you on former NHL player. I did wear the jersey and play exhibition games. <laughs> I don't have a hockey DB in the NHL, so I'm not going to count. That's true. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just boosting you up a little bit, you know? <laughs> Trying mm-hmm. to... I know. I should have let it go. I just can't. I can't let it happen. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll man. Son of former yeah. NHL player. <laughs> yeah. Now that's a familiar introduction. I can handle that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Justin. So I, we're here on uh, on Canada Day, and I know, like for me, my wife's taking the kids to the park, and uh, you've got young ones as well. How, how's your situation over there? Well, virtual school ended two days ago for my four and a half year old, so um, you know I didn't, and my wife didn't. Uh, I guess jump out the window. <laughs> so we survived that. And now it's just a matter of what do you do with him? And our, we have a 14 month old too. So I guess 15 months. So it's like, yeah, I don't know. Now every day we wake up and go, how do we make it to bedtime? That's what our days look like every day. And so she deals with them while I do work stuff till about noon, one o'clock. Yep. Very familiar with this situation. We've got uh, a 14 month and a three year old. Uh, I guess he's going to be four in a couple months here. So it's uh, a similar situation over here. The countdown to bedtime. Actually, a crazy is, uh, timeline, you and I too. Yeah, I just heard you say you're almost a, a ten year anniversary as well. Yeah, yeah. If if the Stanley Cup Finals go to Game Six, it'll be on my ten year wedding anniversary. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. That's probably yeah. Bad. I was trying well, to. Uh, we were talking about. It. We'll I was see. like, is this good or bad? I'm not really sure. But well, yeah. I told I told Steve Dangle that if the Canadians come back and win this series in Game Six on my 10 year wedding anniversary, it's a sign that I have to be a fan again, which honestly, I'm not emotionally willing to do that because I just, it's so much easier to watch games and not be mad after, you know? So it's just, it's just easier now, but uh, I don't think they're coming back at this point, but anyway, uh, let's get into the hockey a little bit. Uh, The Canadians were told in the middle of last game that they weren't allowed to increase their uh, attendance at the, at the games for game three and four. How would you uh, manage that, Justin? Or like, what was your feeling when you saw that? Well, you know, I, you never want to come off as the, the person who's like pandemic insensitive. And I, yeah. you know, my family and I have been extremely cautious through this whole thing. Um, it's been tough. Uh, we've done the right things all along the way. I'm at the point now where I'm fully vaccinated. My wife is fully vaccinated. You know, you see a big percentage of the country as you see what's happening outside the bell, the bell center. And like, for, uh, I'm at the point where I'm like, okay, what are we doing here? Like, is there any difference if there's 6,000, 8,000, maybe there's a number where it's ridiculous. And I understand that they should be getting preferential treatment over X, Y, or Z. I personally, though, I'm just kind of over it. I'm at the point where I'm like, okay, like we, we could, we could put a few more people than 3,500 in that building and be just fine. I think. Yeah, I get it for sure. Especially after seeing like this, the scenes in Tampa Bay and like, they're like packed houses. It definitely must feel, it just must feel tough because like the Canadians fans want to support the team, but you know, not being allowed to like be there even at like half attendance or whatever was proposed uh, must really be tough. But you know, you guys can still have like, they can still have like watch parties and stuff like that. But I do get it though, because we are entering that point where it seems that we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, a lot of Canadians now are getting vaccinated. I mean, we've talked about it on the show before. Uh, So I get it. It must be a bit tough, but there are definitely other avenues I think. Uh, Canadians fans can do yeah. to uh, showcase their fandom support. Yeah, I know. Like, I was looking great. into Canadians the numbers. Fans have been oh, great. Yeah, they have. But no, uh, I was looking into the numbers to see like what the justification was for the government of Quebec, and I understand like compared to the U.S., we are a very cautious country, right? Like they mm-hmm. just threw everything to the yeah. wind as soon as the vaccine came out. <clears throat> but uh, I like Florida right now, not specifically yeah. Tampa, but the state of Florida has three times the COVID rate of Quebec in terms of like people get, getting the virus every day. And uh, the the double vax situation is a lot, actually a lot better in Florida. They're close to 50%, whereas Quebec only like, I think 27%. So like you see like conflicting information, like what you would go with. But I, I, I do get it from the government's perspective, but man, it must be deflating for the Canadians. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about Florida too, Andrew. Well, this so, is yeah. a... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I honestly, I, I don't know if many um, people from Florida listen to this show, but that's the worst place on earth. I, I just I cannot, <laughs> like the, it feels like everything there wants you dead from the, there's animals and bugs and possibly people. And I just, I don't know, but anyway, um, it is a, a, a different world, a different state, a different country. I understand all that, but for the, the Canadians players, they, you know, they've proved that they can find it from within themselves before. They don't have to draw on outside sources. The energy energy in the city is still there. Hopefully it doesn't affect the hockey game. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that you're right about that. That they do feed on their the energy of their fans, but they have proven so far in the playoffs that it hasn't been a necessary uh, function of what they've been doing. Now, Justin, you're play video coach for us for a moment, and you've you've obviously paid attention to the first two games. I think the first game Tampa really took it took them to the woodshed, right? I think overall they were, were much better. They surprised the Canes with the speed that they were able to attack with the puck movement, just like put, gave them fits and caused so many mistakes. There were fewer mistakes in game two and the Canadians for the most part dominated the flow of play. But if you're, if you're the video coach, what are you showing the Canadians right now to say like, this is what you need to do differently? You know, I think, you know, the uh, there's a saying that, a lot of coaches have now it was on the wall for Mike Babcock's office. And I know saying his name is like, it turns people off, but like, yeah, he's a pretty decent coach for a long time. Um, but it's catch them doing it right. So instead of, you know, showing them the video where you say, you know, look at this, you turn it over here and you can't be doing this and don't do that. You show them when it worked. And I think there were large stretches of that second period where you say, okay, look at us in the offensive zone. When we played in their end, when we got it behind their D we uh, had sustained ozone pressure, like Tampa Bay in their own zone is not the best hockey team in the NHL. Montreal, I thought made, made them look weak at times when they had the puck in the ozone. So my emphasis would be like in previous three rounds, we really capitalized on transition play, capitalizing on odd man rushes uh, and, and, you know, waiting for them to make a mistake. We can actually get it behind their D chip it behind their D get pucks in the offensive zone and don't worry about trying to make, you know, do something creative on a rush and play in the O zone. And um, you know, I think that plays into the hands. Of a lot of the guys in Montreal who aren't fast necessarily the Perry's and stalls and those sort of lower end guys, but can still control the play once they get in puck battles in the front of the net, I think they can work, work Tampa low. It's interesting. I think because like my takeaway from that was like, maybe they need to add Tatar into the mix a little bit and get a little bit more offense going. Cause from just breaking down uh, the last game there, they did control a majority of like the shots, the shot attempts, all that stuff. But I was looking at like, they got several rush chances. Uh, Nick Suzuki in particular was, you know, on fire that game, but almost all of them, they were either forced wide or forced to their backhand wide. And you know, like, uh, I got in an argument last night on Twitter because uh, I, a couple of people decided that uh, Nick Suzuki's like half breakaway that he had where uh, Vasilevsky poke checked him was like a high danger scoring chance. I was like, well, if there's no short, no shot, it's not a scoring chance. I understand what you're trying to say, but it looked more dangerous than it was with the, I don't know if you recall, but uh, Eric Cernak yeah, was coming back from the far side pressuring Suzuki. So he couldn't take the puck wide on his backhand to go around Vasilevsky he was so it was just like an easy poke check for Vasilevsky, right? So I'm wondering if they need a little bit more offensive weapons to go into it because I know like a lot of the focus has been on the defensive mistakes, but I think that's one of those situations where like you, you can't really plan for a bad bounce off the boards, right? But you can plan for putting a little bit more into your attack. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And, you know, it's actually funny you mentioned about those, those high danger chances. That was an internal battle that I had with, uh, with Kyle Dubas when I was with the Marlies was what do you, what's a scoring chance? So I was often on the team that you can have a scoring chance without a shot. I feel like if I pass the puck to someone who's wide open in front of the net and it hops their stick, you know, that's, you know, we got in a position where something was going to be created. It gets more subjective and it's really hard to measure so that is part of where the the issue becomes but you know that you know i don't know in that one what i would call it i thought it was a great poke check by vasilevsky but i agree that like if you're montreal you have to find a way to create more and if tatar is an option to do that um you know i think that's probably the smart move there are people who say you just do it do what got you here but you have to be able to play different ways. You can't do the same thing and expect it to beat four NHL teams. You have to take the next opponent and say, what's going to work here. And if it is Tatar, if it is playing more of a guy, you know, more minutes for a guy like Gustafson who's got an offensive bent or whatever, you need to try something to beat different style teams. I'm glad that you brought up Gustafson because I, I thought that like, he's such a interesting guy to watch because he does some good things. And then once in a while, like once every couple shifts, he does something with the puck where you're like, no, what, what are you doing? Why would you make yeah, that decision? Once every couple shifts is way too much. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's Eric Gustafson experience much. right there. Is I'm, it? Yeah. yeah. I'm very familiar. I'm a Flyers fan <laughs> slash watcher of them. Oh, and yeah. So I was very familiar with that experience from this year. And I, we talked about it on the podcast before. Sorry to interrupt your question, Andrew, but we talked about it on the podcast oh. before that, like this was coming. I knew it. I've seen this. I've seen this movie before. So it's just, it's funny that only now play him so much before it was coming. Sorry. Yeah. To yeah. 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 Uh, so you can continue Andrew. Just like we've been here before with this. 
Yeah, it's it's funny that like Gustafson is the guy that you expect to be making the big mistakes, and he has made some weird miscues. But the guy that I'm worried about watching these first two games is Ben Sherratt. And I wonder, Justin, like with how solid he's been, like he had a really rough start to the playoffs against the Maple Leafs, trying to play too physical, getting out of position to make hits and kind of trying to intimidate Austin Matthews and getting punked in the process. And then he started to play within himself and played like his very conservative hockey, which is what he's good at, had a good stretch run, but is kind of starting to make these crazy mental mistakes. And I wonder, is, is he a guy that you worry about or do you look at, a two game stretch where he's, you know, bobbling pucks all over the place and say, you just got to sit him down and tell him to calm down. Well, this has been the insanity of their run so far, uh, you know, is that you look at the minutes, the top four have played and you go, wow, that top four has been amazing. But then you look at, yeah, like Ben Sherratt and Joel, Joel Edmondson are not necessarily guys that you're like, yeah, that guy should play 27 minutes a night or, you know, whatever it's been 23, 24 minutes. And so it kind of felt like, when's it going to happen? Like, are they better players than I thought they were? Has everything leading up to this been, I don't know, experience to the, them becoming elite players, or is it coming? And the far more likely answer is what we've seen throughout their careers is the truth, and yeah. that this is going to be coming at some point. So it's kind of the way it is with all of these players that like have upside but have these moments where like Jake Gardner would be in the hall of fame if he didn't have the downside moments, but he does have them. You can't pretend he doesn't. So I guess with Montreal, you kind of accept that that is going to happen at some point. It's unfortunate it's happening in the Stanley cup final, but you don't get to pick and choose when these moments show up for players that make mistakes like that. Would you move Sherratt down the lineup at all? Or do you think that at this point they have to roll with what they've got essentially like I don't think they're going to bring Brett Kulak out from a healthy scratch into the top four. So it would essentially be putting Gustafson into the top four. And I don't know oh if that's boy. a risk they want to take. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I was going through some uh, Canadians highlights from earlier in the, uh, in the playoffs and I watched Kulak against like the Jets and I was like, I don't know. He looked pretty good. Maybe I didn't, I was just catching selective parts or whatever, but I thought he looked all right, but I don't think you can change it up at this point. You've, this has been a historic run for the Habs. And at this point, I think you're at a, a dance with the ones who brought you. I know earlier I said that you need to change it up to play against different style opponents, but like those top four, that's been the tent pole here of what they've built. I don't think that's something you're able to move on from at this point. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to talk about, uh, the Canadians and the lightning a little bit more on the other side here. We're going to take a quick break. And then I have a hot take that I plan to throw at Justin and see what he says at the, the end of this interview. We'll be back in one minute. This episode is brought to you by rock auto, With the ever increasing numbers of makes and models is now impossible for your local chain auto parts store to stock all the parts you need. Why endure often pointless or seemingly intimidating questioning and wait, wait and wait while the person behind the counter orders the parts on their computer choosing only the brands their warehouse happens to carry. You have computers with access to rockauto.com at home and in your pocket. rockauto.com is a family business, serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. They have everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Whether it's for your classic or daily driver, get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The rockauto.com catalog is unique and remarkably easy to navigate. Quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brands, specifications, and prices you prefer. Best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Why spend us up to twice as much for the same parts? Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Right locked on in their how-did-you-hear-about-us box so they know we sent you. Amazing selection. Reliably low prices. All the parts your car will ever need. rockauto.com This episode is brought to you by Green Room. Green Room is the first social audio platform made for sports fans. The app is free to download, and once you're in, you can talk to, with me, Andrew, other fans, athletes, and insiders in real time about your favorite team or sport. Andrew and I will be hosting our own green room hopefully soon, and yes, you can finally join in on the conversation you listen to here every week. Green Room is the perfect place to start or join conversations about the league. You'll find fans just like you on Green Room for watch parties, debates, post-game breakdowns, and of course reacting to big news or rumors. You will have a chance to chat with me, Andrew, and might even have a chance to be featured on the Crosstrack NHL podcast through Green Room Conversations. Go download the free Green Room app now, currently available on all iOS devices. Be sure to create a profile, link your Twitter, and join the NHL group for the latest league updates. Follow me at Mary C. Clark to be notified when my room goes live, and I know you won't want to miss it. See you there. Green Room, changing the way we talk about sports. 
All right. So, Justin, I'm looking at this series and, you know, obviously the Canadians have adjusted well in the second game in terms of not getting blown out of the water by Tampa Bay. But I think everyone would agree that they need to make some more adjustments to get the offense going two goals in two games. As great as Andre Vasilevsky is, I don't think they've made him work particularly hard. I know that he faced 43 shots, according to the NHL's stat keepers. Uh, in game two, but I didn't see many amazing saves. Like he wasn't forced to slide across the net and make desperation saves, anything like that. Uh, we, we talked, you talked a little bit about, uh, you know, kind of grinding out the Tampa Bay players in zone, but what, what do you think is the key to exploiting the lightning defensively a little bit? Probably trying to find lateral passes before the shots. Like if you look at a lot of the attempts that they got last night, it was a player getting in behind the D and taking a shot. Like, you know, I'm thinking back to previous series where they've won and, you know, I'm thinking of the Perry to Caulfield goal and uh, a lot of the, I guess the, a couple of two on O's in overtime didn't hurt, but a lot of the great plays and, and offense that they've generated has come off lateral movement before the shots. And right now, yes, they got some looks. Yes, they got a lot of shots, but I think the reason it looked like Vasilevsky didn't have to do too much is because he was able to square up to who was the guy who was going to be the shooter. Uh, Tampa Bay brings really good back pressure. So uh, this may involve bringing more people up into that rush when you have a guy, another defenseman coming up into the play. And, and again, trying to look to make some passes beforehand because you know, it's, it's tough. I think Vasilevsky is the best goalie in the world. I know some Habs fans might think that Carey Price is right there with him, but uh, I think it's Connor Hellebuck. He's the guy. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair vote too. That's he's, he's one of the guys in the conversation for sure. So um, yeah, if they can find a way to get that ozone time, but also find a, a pass before the shot, I like the chance. has got to open the guy up a bit. Absolutely. I know that uh, the Canadians love to move it laterally, especially that Suzuki line, but they haven't been able to find those spots versus the lightning. I wonder if they have to do essentially what Corey Perry did against the jets on their first goal is just sacrifice the body. Uh, the, the goal that he scored to open that series, I think set the tone for it where he just skated straight into Logan Stanley's elbow and set up an Eric Stahl goal. Uh, I think <laughs> a lot of fans have... would like to see Corey Perry do that every shift. If he wants yeah, to try fans of every single team, <laughs> but is it weird? Do you find like nobody's hating on Corey Perry, these playoffs? Like, I, I wonder if he's slotted into that sweet spot of being a guy who used to be an elite talent, but is still kind of good, but is now too old to be great. So everyone just admires yeah. what he's doing. It's funny. Cause the way he plays like with that sort of hard edge and going to the net, I would be tempted to say the words like you can't help but respect the guy, but I don't believe that at all. I think <laughs> you can't help but respect the way he plays. You know, you, sure. you admire someone who puts their body on the line to make the plays as much as you don't respect him, maybe accidentally clipping the goalie or John with the goalie. You got to respect that. It's pretty effective at getting people's heads when he's in there. And he's, he's just, he finds a way to be relevant, whether he's playing great or not. Um, so I respect what he does on the ice and you're right. There's a level like the old guy love where when you're old and it's just, like i don't even care if he's good we love this guy for nostalgia purposes he has yeah. just enough of that and just enough useful usefulness and everyone's kind of willing to turn a blind eye to the fact that he earned uh, the nickname the worm honestly <laughs> yeah a lot of the like you mentioned how like he's kind of the old guy um that you get in like on like every um like stanley cup final team that people want to see win um i think it also has to do with the fact that he's you know been really a good mentor to the young players i mean I've seen like a lot on Twitter than talking about his relationship with, you know, Cole Caulfield, Nick Suzuki. So I definitely think that plays a part in it too, is that he's kind of like ushering in the new core of yeah. uh, Montreal. So, uh, cause I was surprised too, uh, that there wasn't a lot of like, like not backlash, but like, I don't know, hesitation because we know Corey yeah. Perry's history. It's just, but I think that has to do with it too, is like his role on this team is not a role we've seen him in before. It doesn't feel like to me. No, it's true. And what's crazy is like, I think there is a lot of players who, if they accepted that role earlier, we would all love them a little bit more. But I think for Corey Perry, it was hard to be like, I am the old guy who's a mentor, but he has leaned into it here in Montreal. Um, it didn't feel like he had been that in previous seasons to me, but the, he seems more accepting of being that guy now. It's, it's interesting. Once you see the player recognize they only have a couple of years left, they almost like soften. There's like a human element where you realize yeah. they're not superheroes yeah. and going to play forever. And um, I don't know, there's, there's an appreciation factor. Definitely like, okay, we might get a couple more Corey Perry series uh, seasons here. So I guess if he's appreciating it, we'll appreciate him while he's around. Mm -hmm. I, think that's a good point. I think going to the Stanley cup final back to back years probably also helps Corey <laughs> Perry's, uh, you know, reputation around the league in terms of being just a yeah. fighter right like he's had two spectacular playoffs in a row playing uh 
you know, not the role that people expect from Corey Perry. I mean, I think a couple of years ago, watching him at Anaheim, he looked done uh, from the injuries that he was dealing with. So to kind of gut out these last couple of years has been uh, really impressive. Even if you, if you, even if you hate him. Uh, speaking of some different stuff that's happened with the Canadians, I don't know if you recall Justin, but a few years ago, several years ago, you wrote a column for the athletic talking about uh, the Canadians poor defensive posture after defensive zone face-off losses does it you remember that column at all no not at all (laughs) (laughs) i drank a lot those days though so yeah well (laughs) i know that i think you might have worked on it with tyler dello before he was hired by the devils this is a long time ago this was the year with uh, under claude julian where the canadians were playing like really strong hockey but they lost like 10 games in a row they just like couldn't put it together and I, I look at these playoffs and you look at in game one, Kucherov scored off the faceoff. They've struggled off faceoffs against Vegas as well. Do you, do you see that those, do they still have an issue off of lost defensive zone draws? Or is it just that this is what happens to a team sometimes that doesn't win defensive zone draws? You know, to, to me, there's no, there's no excuse for getting scored on off. Uh, off a face-off because it's like the only time in the game you're organized and you can point to your role and you have an assigned role and it should be super easy to take care of so when something like this pops up my only thought is like this shouldn't be a recurring problem and it's not something I would bank on being recurring because you sit and watch the video and go hey you know like that you know Petrie you got to get your stick out in the lane quick it's got to be you know you have to start with your stick out closer to the guy who's going to shoot the puck we can't you know let Kucherov get a puck off from there or you know whatever the situation may be. So, you know, it's funny. I don't remember exactly what it was about how they played then, but you know, every time I hear like, ah, they, this team sucks off a uh, lost draws or whatever, it feels like a fixable thing. So if you're a Habs fan, uh, if, if it doesn't get fixed, then you say, Hey, can I talk to Dom Ducharme or Luke Richardson say like, fellas, this is something you can sort out. Uh, coaches can affect faceoffs and special teams a great deal. The run of play, it's a lot harder. Yeah. That, that's like my, one of my biggest question marks was, the fact that this has been a problem for so long. And like, to me, like Cole Julian is an excellent coach for most aspects of play. I, I think Dom Ducharme and Luke Richardson have done a, done a good job in the playoffs, but like you said, face-offs is a, an area where coaches actually do have control. Yes. And when you keep on getting victimized there, it's hard to look past it. Uh, okay. So I've got a hot take that I got to run by you, Justin, because I think there's going to be a, a bit of a controversial one uh, with the Canadians fandom. But I, I look at this run and I'm trying to think if I was the general manager of the Montreal Canadiens, what are the lessons that I take from this run? And I think Mark Bergevin is just going to double down because that's essentially what he does anytime he has a little bit of success. But if, if it was me and I, I see this happening and I see what happened last year in the playoffs and I look at what the kids are doing, the first thing I do, even if they win the Stanley Cup, is I start looking for people to sell off Shea Weber and a couple of the other older guys because the kids are all right. We know that, but Shea Weber is going to be what? 36 next year. When's that going to turn the other way? He, you know, his seasons have kind of been up and down. He has great stretches and poor stretches, but while he's showing this level with a busted up hand, why would you try to run that back? when you could get great value for the future and extend your window. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, I guess it depends. So first off, I generally agree with this line of thinking, which is like, I don't know that this Montreal team is good enough to win a Stanley cup is currently constructed. And, and I say that as a team that's in the cup final, if you re-racked the playoffs and put every team back square one today, and we played this playoffs over a hundred times, how many times is Montreal in the finals? I don't know. Maybe how many times did they get out of the first round? Right. You know, so you got to be honest with yourself about that. You know, Shea Weber, I agree is probably someone who's gaming isn't going to age amazingly because he's so physical and so big and heavy and you know, that sort of thing. That's hard to, to do as you get older. But if you think you're good enough, if you think that, all right, it didn't work this year, but we were this close as, as you mentioned, Mark Bergevin might, he may say, well, we're not going to be able to find someone who does what Shea Weber does. He played huge, important minutes for us. We got to keep him. And then you're going to start to eat into his value as the decline starts to show. Uh, so 
I, I like your idea. I think it's a good idea because I, and here's, I'm actually going to be the least popular one be, between the three of us here after saying this, but I think Montreal's best chance to win a Stanley cup is probably four years from now and not next year. And yeah, you know, yeah, it's, I think it's that's right. you're looking at, looking at these, the guys you're talking about, the cock and Yemis and Suzuki and Caulfield love them. Great players. Uh, and I think you're onto something with a lot of this, a lot of these guys, but it depends how, where you think you're at in your window. And I would bet that Mark Bergevin thinks they are very, very close here and they need to win this year or next year or something like that. Yeah. I think this is the big issue with, you know, us being able to be far away from it and not, you know, talking to these guys every day and dealing with them personally, because there's a certain amount of cutthroat that you have to be that like, I don't think that you get the value back in trading carry price that, he brings on a day-to-day basis, just being around the team. Uh, his contract is just too heavy. I think most teams just cannot take that on. Even with the playoffs that he's had, like you look at the regular seasons that he's had, you're just not going to get that value. But I think Weber has a digestible contract with the salary that's going down every year. That is where you can get value. But if you're Mark Bergevin, it's hard to trade a guy like Shea Weber and then, you know, walk into that room and explain it to the guys, but that's the job, right? No, I know you're right. And so this is like where I think uh, sports management and hockey management is moving towards is like having guys like the offer sheets. They're like, well, then a guy won't trade with me or whatever. It's like, okay, who cares? Are you trying to win? Like the idea too with offer sheets where it's like, uh, would you do it just to handcuff an opponent's salary structure? Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you say, yeah, sorry, you got to match this and now your cap's tight and you got to trade someone, but guess what? We're trying to beat your hockey team. So, yeah. you know, and when that guy calls and he's like, Hey, I was mean. We like that player. And it's like, yeah, well, this is a billion dollar business. And you know, I kind of, we're trying to win. I don't understand all this. So I think it'll move towards that where people are more cutthroat and yeah, a beloved fan favorite who's effective and liked in the room has to go because you know, to me, the best example of ever, this ever happening is DeMar DeRozan getting traded from the Raptors to get Kawhi Leonard and put him over the hump. And you, who doesn't love DeMar DeRozan in Toronto? No one. Everyone loves him. But when you win, you say, right, I kind of had to do that. And it's not yeah. always going to pan out that perfectly, but you should be able to at least justify that's what we were trying to do with, with those moves. Yeah. I, and that's the kind of thing that uh, I think that hockey needs to get with, you know, and it's not the only area where they can learn from basketball, but uh, I, I would like to see some more aggression from NHL GMs. Cause I don't think this, it seems like a lot of them believe this is the making friends league and not the NHL <laughs> where you're trying to win a Stanley cup. And yeah. I, I see this Canadians run has been uh, spectacular and fun to watch. And I'm sure it's been reinvigorating for the organization. It's been kind of in the dumps for a few years now, but for the future, I just don't think that they should run it back and try over again. I, I think you look at that division and between Boston, Tampa Bay, Toronto, Florida, like it's going to be really rough next year to even make the playoffs. Not that I don't think the Canadians can, I think they can, but I would not say that it's a sure thing in the very least. The East is very strong. You, even if you make five teams from the Atlantic, a possibility to make it like, you still got to beat out the metropolitan teams, which that division is taken off too. Like, you know, the Rangers are going to be better. It's, it's a tough situation. So I, I agree with you, Justin, that four years or so from now is the play. It's just the commitment to uh, price and Weber that I think is going to hold them back. Like even Jeff Petrie, who I think is still fantastic and is a bit younger than Weber. I would listen to offers. Yeah. I really appreciate that you guys are talking about this, but I don't see it happening. We know that no, how it. NHL, we know how NHL <laughs> GMs so work. We know, we know how they work, but I really do appreciate that. We're having this great thought experiment and, you know, we're looking so smart, but it is not happening. But it, even though it would definitely be in the best interest of Montreal, for sure. It's almost, uh, it, it almost is useless to even think about, but yeah, no, the, um, the way the way it it works to, today, and by the way, Mark Bergevin is probably going to take this. Uh, do you think he's coming back? Because I think he'll probably just enjoy this, celebrate it. Now he can go do whatever the heck he wants. Like Elliot's saying, he's had a contract on the table, an extension for as long as he wanted, and just hasn't taken it. I wonder if this is viewed as a success now, and he could just uh, step back for a little bit. Do you think he'll come back? From what I've heard, there is a contract on the table, but there's also a possibility that he moves up to like president of hockey operations and 
uh, someone else takes over as like the general manager situation. Cause as much as Bergevin obviously loves working for the Canadians, it's his boyhood favorite team and everything. It means a lot to him. You've seen how it ages him, right? <laughs> like you look at it when he <laughs> took over the team in 2012 and it doesn't look like it's only been nine years. Like it, he looks yeah. like he's aged a lot. He's gone gray. It's a lot of stress. Yeah. You know, he, it's, it's tough on, to, to manage this hockey team. I'm sure that uh, five years from now, Kyle Dubas will look 55 instead of 40. Oh, geez. Yeah. It's the U S presidency. It's the U S the U S presidency is very similar. NHL GMs and U S presidency are the same. Anyway, continue. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I had a theory earlier that uh, being a GM is about keeping your job as GM for a long time, but you, it's a lot easier to be a good GM. Once you get past that, I feel like Bergevin has kept his job as GM for a long time and can, you know, he's made a lot of money and made a name for himself. Like now, if he wants to do something else, I think he can be probably even more effective and enjoy the job more. So yeah, maybe it's time to step away from it, from that aspect. Uh, This is something I want to work on in a bigger picture, just about how, job preservation is at the core of so much of what happens because there's only so few they're important they pay a lot yada yada and you see it in a, it's reflected in all the conservative choices that people make yeah it's unfortunate it's honestly in the same way kind of as politics right is it's all about getting reelected not necessarily doing the best thing for right the people and it, it, it is unfortunate that's the way a lot of general managers do manage and it's one of those things where i don't think in terms of his entire tenure, you would say that Mark Bergevin has been a fantastic or even great GM, maybe not even that good of a GM, but this last year, I think he did really good work. Like all of his offseason yeah. moves panned out, you know, Joel Edmondson was highly questionable. I think he's fit really well with Jeff Petrie, whether or not he turns into a pumpkin next year is up for debate. But uh, overall, I think, you know, signing to Foley took, taking advantage of the cap that he had when the cap went flat and other teams couldn't afford a player like Toffoli uh, signing him for four years, really big move. Uh, the Josh Anderson contract extension, I think is going to be interesting to say the least, but I think mm. that he does add an element that Max Domi didn't. So it, it is funny. Like you said, once you get the tenure, you're able to maybe be a little bit more aggressive and uh, maybe your owner trusts you a little bit more or your president of hockey operations trusts you a little bit more, but uh Mark Bergevin is an interesting question as a person. He's just, uh, I, I can never really get a, a full read on him other than like when things go bad, he's super defensive. Yeah, he is. He is that, but I at least like that he, you see his humanity too, right? Like yeah. he is greatly affected. The win, seeing him celebrate was enjoyable. Seeing him, you're right, defend himself when things are going poorly, not enjoyable. Uh, there's a person there. I'll take that over someone who goes goes up there and says the right things. I watch sports mostly to be entertained. <laughs> he is exactly. an entertainer, so give him that. Absolutely. Well, Justin, thank you so much for giving us some time on this uh, Canada Day where uh, I think everyone is a little bit more somber than usual due to the uh, right. uncovering of all these mass graves and uh, our sins of the past that are continuing today and not uh, being recognized. But uh, go have fun with your kids. I'm going to do the same thing. And uh, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me anytime. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thank you. Built Bar is the best tasting protein bar ever. And the new improved Built Bar is even deliciouser. Did you know that Built Bar has nine delicious flavors? Plus the occasional limited time flavor. If you don't know the Built Bar flavors, well, you're missing out. As you've got coconut, coconut almond, cherry, raspberry, mint brownie, peanut butter brownie, double chocolate, and salted caramel. There's something for everyone with Built Bar, and yet if you haven't tried all the flavors, you can get a mix box, where you'll get two of each of the nine flavors. Not only are Built Bar flavors the best tasting, they're healthy too. Built Bar is great for any health-conscious person, as you can lose or maintain weight while indulging in a delicious treat. Most of the flavors have 17 grams protein, only 130 calories, only 4 grams sugar, and only 4 grams net carbs. A couple of the other flavors have 18 grams protein, just 180 calories, 5 grams sugar, and 5 grams net carbs. Nine amazing flavors, all tasty, all healthy. Order today and get that raspberry or mint brownie or whatever you'd like. All bars are covered in 100% chocolate and are soft and easy to chew. So go to BuiltBar.com and use the promo code LOCKED15 and you'll get 15% off your next order. Use promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at BuiltBar.com. All right, Andrew, and we're back. That was an interview with Justin Bourne. Really had some fun conversations. And I really liked your hot take at the end there. That was a really, really spicy one. Yeah, I mean, Justin obviously agreed with it, which didn't make it seem too spicy. But I think for Canadians Twitter, 
uh, it might be a little bit spicy. <laughs> it's at least for, you know, NHL GMs, because uh, I think you were on the right path there in terms of, you know, um, what you said. But I, like I said in the interview, I don't think there's any possible way uh, that's something NHL GMs would think of. No, probably but... not. It, yeah. It's just too forward thinking, right? Like, not to give myself <laughs> too much credit here, because I don't think it's... I don't think it's necessarily that no. big of a Andrew, pump stretch. your tires. This is this is our podcast, Andrew. Pump your okay, tires. Okay, okay. I'm a genius. No one else could yes. have thought about this but me. Exactly. But uh, I, I don't want to like... I, I really don't think it's that uh, big of a stretch in terms of like ideas. But uh, I, I think it's something that they need to consider, uh, which is essentially not blowing it up fully, but moving on from some of their veteran players who got, to the, got them to this point in order to build for the future. And it's it's a tough thing to do, as we said with Justin, but uh, your job as a general manager is to make tough, tough decisions. And sometimes they're decisions that might make you cry to, to trade a guy like Shea Weber, who you obviously love so much, but you, you have to think of the future of your team. And I think mm-hmm. the Canadians future looks pretty strong if you can surround it with the right players. And I don't think, uh, a bunch of veterans that are about to fall off significantly are, are the right way to go. I, I think keeping Carey Price in terms of uh, like riding out his career, keeping him a Canadian until he retires makes sense because the value probably isn't there in a trade. And you know that if you do make the playoffs, he can get you going on a run. But the other guys, time to move. You know, <laughs> it's just you got to think forward. And Carey Price can mentor your goaltender of the future and Caden Primo. So. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta think forward. But uh, I think we gotta talk about our pop culture roulette, right? Yeah, I was gonna say. You finally caught up, for, right? Yeah, time for time for hockey is over. It's our pop culture uh, roulette segment of the week uh, that we do every week, talking about pop culture that catches our eye and whatnot. Uh, and yes, I did catch up with Loki just specifically for this podcast because I knew you would ask Andrew. <laughs> also, I was falling, but I was falling a bit behind, so I watched uh, episodes three and four um, yesterday and. Oh boy! Uh, yeah. I don't know if wow. we want to go full spoiler, full spoiler territory. I, I'd say, um, I'd say, let's let, we'll go full spoiler, but we're gonna warn everybody right now. Yes, if Thank you, you haven't watched Loki, and if you have any intention of watching Loki or are invested at all in the MCU, please, please pause this podcast and save it until after you've watched it, up to episode four. Yes, exactly. So, oh boy, Andrew, oh. Uh, <laughs> how many twists can you ram into ten seconds or ten minutes? Yeah, yeah, I know, right? Um. I don't even know where to start. We're not going to recap the episode, but uh, I guess like one of the first things I was thinking of is I knew that the TVA was I, or the um, the timekeepers. I had a feeling that they were they were a fraud, a sham. Yeah. I didn't think they were real. And then when they opened the episode with them, I was like, oh, this is weird. Why are we seeing them? I didn't think that was going to happen. I just thought they were going to be like a mysterious force or whatever. Then of course we get to the end and they Wizard of Oz us with yes. you know the man behind the curtain thing, and I was like, I knew it. I knew it. There was no way that this wasn't going to be where where it was. Uh, that was one of my big prevailing things i know there's a lot more to talk about but i was like i was right type of thing yeah my wife did the exact same thing because she called in episode one that the timekeepers were going to be a wizard of oz style thing and (laughs) i think a lot of people who are familiar with the comics were and i think specifically because of ravona right uh ravona renslayer who's like the head of the tva in in this series is highly associated with kang the conqueror who is a time traveling megalomaniac megalomaniacal uh conqueror as it says in his name he likes to <laughs> conquer things uh i think kang is going to show up in here before oh, really? episode four i was like maybe a 10 percent chance that they would show up with kang it was just like kind of hinting towards what was going to happen in ant-man mm-hmm. and the wasp quantumania now with what's happened there and the end of that episode i think we're going to see kang i think it's almost a guarantee Oh, you say that, but uh, we we know what happened with WandaVision when people are like, oh, this is true. Mustafa's going to show up. He's going to show Mephisto, up. Uh, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Pronunciations. Like, well, you have heard are not my forte on this show, yeah, well, but we, we, we suffer we anyway. <laughs> we suffer anyway. But uh, yeah, t- this episode really was, uh, episode four, at least, really solidified for me that this is like on a very similar tier that WandaVision is. I mean, you've got similar concepts running, you know, all the TVA agents are variants, they're pulled from their own lives, much like how in WandaVision, Wanda pulled the citizens of that town from their lives. Uh, so it's got very similar vibes to me. So I really dig it. It finally gets weird. Um, you know, when, um, 
Morpheus gets uh, pruned and zapped out. I was like, oh no, this is the time where, you know, this, the, one of the characters dies and like, it, it was sad. And I was like, all right. I was kind of like expecting some emotional turmoil like that to happen. But then, of course, Loki gets got yeah, at the that, end. I audibly and I was gasped. like, there's no way. I was like, there's no way. I was like, there's no way they're killing off their title character. I was like, well, maybe Sylvie will take up, you know, maybe it'll just be about her for the rest of the time. But then there's an after credit scene that shows him, I think, in like a in like a New York type of thing. Yeah. I, I don't it, really know. It but was with like, like a other, post-apocalyptic scenario, yeah. right? And yeah. Yeah, with like. Richard E. Grant as comic book Loki, which looks yeah. utterly ridiculous, <laughs> which yeah. is fantastic. Uh, I think it's funny to see on these Disney Plus series, they have kind of leaned into the comic accurate looks a couple of times here. Yeah, and you look yeah, at like, yeah. how ridiculous Vision looked, how ridiculous comic book Loki looked. And you're like, respect for uh, Elizabeth Olsen for actually pulling off comic book accurate Wanda. Yeah. But she's just that good. She's just that she good. She is that but good. Yeah, yeah. I just, it it really was. It was definitely a step up in terms of, you know, I mean, even at the very beginning, I got, I got very, like, big Doctor Who vibes yes, from the show. Very much so. Um, so it was already starting to hit that, like, because I'm a big Doctor Who fan. So it was really starting to hit, like, those beats. I'm like, all right, I'm really, like, it took a few episodes. Like, I really enjoyed the aesthetic, but, like, it took a few episodes for things to, like, you know, start to ramp up for me. It was the same though with WandaVision. I think WandaVision got like a couple extra points just because of the format was so different. Yeah, it was like a love and, letter like, to TV, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, it's really finally hit its stride now. Um, and so like, it's already it's hitting everything. It's checking off the boxes, the reveals, the twists and turns. You know, making you feel things. Homages to other shows I enjoy. It's really starting to hit that, and I'm really psyched to see where the last two episodes go. Um. And shout out to Tom Hiddleston for his performances, oh too. Oh my god, was he ever fantastic, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very good. Um, I mean, I coming into the series, I wasn't really, like, not that I wasn't a fan of Loki, but, like, I wasn't, you know, like, a hard girl, like, hard fangirling over him and stuff like that. Uh, but I very enjoyed his performance. He's put a lot of nuance into this character, and good on him, and it's just, it's been very fun. I get, like I said, I get a lot of WandaVision vibes from this, so. Yeah, and I, th I think a lot of people have kind of... Um assumed that there's something between loki and sylvie or lady loki in terms of like romance and that's it's kind of left a little bit obscure or like what mobius interprets in terms of uh, his interrogation of loki in episode four but i know that uh, i think it's sophie di martino or maybe it was tom hiddleston said that there's not a romantic relationship in this show the whole Nexus event that caused the TVA to see uh, Loki was that Loki started to love himself, mm -hmm. right? Like, in terms of, yep. like, yes, he loves Sylvie, but it's not a romantic love. It was, like, that respect. And, like, the whole point was, like, it's very sad in a way that, like, that huge Nexus event is that Loki is not supposed to love himself. Yeah. Like, that's so sad <laughs> to yeah. think about that, like, all this the way he's been beaten down and you watch the, when he was stuck mm. in the time loop with Sif. Yeah. And Sif's back. That was great to see. It was great to see Jamie Alexander back as Sif. It's been a long time coming, but you see how he views himself and yeah. like how his life has been like, yes, he's the trickster and he's always causing trouble and he's the bad guy, but like he was always alone. You know, it was only his mother Frigga who he felt love from. So it's interesting to see how they've played his character and, you know, making him sympathetic in a lot of ways. And I think they've kind of done that from the very beginning. If you watch the the first Thor and Tom Hiddleston's acting, I think all throughout his time as Loki has been spectacular. But just everything about what he does, like he says it's for attention and he's a narcissist. And yes, that's true. But it's also like he wants, he craves love from the people around him. And you see, like, in the first episode of the Loki TV series, when they show him reacting to Thor giving him admiration and saying, like, I thought the world of you. And at the end of Thor Ragnarok, when he says that maybe you're not so bad after all, and, like, the huge yeah. smile on Loki's face, you're like, okay, this is this is what's actually important to Loki. 
you know, and I just love the the arc that he's been able to go on, and I'm so excited for what we're going to see, the absolute chaos in the last two episodes of this series. I can't believe they can wrap this up in two episodes. That's yeah, I know, the right? craziest There's so thing. much. There's so much left to do. And again, shout out, you mentioned her, but shout out Sofia DiMartino yes. for her performance as Sylvie. Incredible. I don't, I don't know what she's been in before this. I legitimately don't know. Uh, I'm pulling up our IMDB page as we speak just to, you know, see if I know her from anything, but shout out to her she's been fantastic in that role um and nothing that i can see that just caught my eye at least on her imdb but but yeah uh, she's been fantastic i'm very very happy uh, i don't know just the cast has been great i've really enjoyed uh where we've been in this show so and shout outs to all the you know the newbies and stuff like that getting their times to shine and yeah, it's been great. I really love it so far. Yeah, I know, like, uh, Sophie Martino also tweeted earlier today that uh, she was a new mom when the series was filming, and oh, that yeah. they made her costume with, uh, like, hidden zippers so that she could unzip and uh, breastfeed her baby or, or pump, and I thought, like, that kind of thing, it matters so much, and I think we yeah. should point that out, that, like, allowing moms to, to do their thing, like, becoming a parent myself... And, and seeing the amount of stress and uh, just the sheer amount of pressure that's put on moms, I, I really appreciate that the producers and showrunners on Loki were able to do that for Sophie DiMartino because that I just think that's super awesome that we're at a stage now where women are actually, uh, you know, treated fairly and yeah. given the opportunity to work while also taking care of a baby is just, it, it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so really great stuff i'm glad i caught up so we could talk about this i'm glad we could do a bit of a spoiler uh, filled talk uh just because it definitely uh after that last episode it was definitely warranted i think um so i guess we'll you know talk about the next like the final two episodes uh when they show up obviously with spoiler warnings for all of you who don't want to listen or want to catch up so you know like andrew said pause the show I mean, at this point, you're in too deep. Yeah, so too late. Too late. <laughs> yeah, too late. But we did warn you. So well, if you're here, warning. it's it, yeah. If you're here, it's by your own volition. So thank you for staying for so long through this episode. And that's all we've got for you today on the Crosscheck NHL Show as part of the Lockdown Podcast Network. Make sure to follow us on your podcast platform of choice, from Apple to Odyssey to Spotify, and rate review us while you're at it. You can follow the pod at Crosscheck NHL on Twitter, me at Mary C Clark on Twitter, and Andrew at Andrew Berkshire on Twitter. We'll be back on Tuesday with some more puck talk. See you next time. Get all the sports news you need in under 20 minutes with the Locked On Today podcast. Host Peter Pukowski updates you on the latest news in every major sport with the help of our local experts. Follow the Locked On Today podcast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.